0: So brothers and sisters, as we continue through the Ten Commandments in the new year, uh, we come this morning to the second commandment of God, as I said, and, and uh, uh, it might seem unnecessary to add of God um, when we speak of the Ten Commandments of God. Uh, but it does fit the way the law of God was first given at Mount Sinai, as we heard earlier this morning in the reading of God's law. Exodus 20 begins, and God spoke all these words, saying. So the Ten Commandments are not just listed in the Bible. They are listed as God himself spoke them. That's important to see. Even more, the, the prologue to the law, if you recall, includes God's own declaration of victory. He is the great king who has conquered his enemies to redeem And deliver his people from slavery. I am the Lord your God, he declares, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it's not wrong to just say the Ten Commandments, uh, but it's only better to add the Ten Commandments of God, the law of God. Because even further, as God indeed spoke all these words, he spoke them personally. This is important to see as we hear the first of the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And and we hear the same in the second commandment, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So this is God's law, a simple point, an obvious point maybe, but given our dullness in sin, Uh, It's a point to be made and and emphasized, even as it is emphasized in the law of God itself. Another point of introduction worth making, and and this too we may already know, uh, but it's that the law is given in two tables. Uh, Otherwise, we might say two parts. Uh, We know from the story of the giving of the law that uh, they were written on Two tablets. Uh, later in Exodus uh, 31, verse 18, we hear it recounted that God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him at Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. We don't know the exact arrangement, of course, of the commands of God on those two tablets, uh, only that there were two tablets which... Uh, at least fits with the understanding of two tables Uh, the first table of the law of god including the first four commandments teaches us how to love god Uh, the second table commandments five through ten teaching us how to love one another uh, how to love our neighbor Uh, so we can think of the the first table if you want as vertical uh, our love from us below to God above, uh, the second table as horizontal, our love one to the other next to us as we live our lives. And what can be said then about the what we might call the progression of the of, of god's commandments? Uh, one way to understand what we might call the law's progression, at least within the first table of the law, is that the first commandment teaches us who to worship. The second commandment, how to worship him. The third commandment, to what extent. And the fourth commandment, when to worship God. Those of you who are participating in the Thursday night study, which is also now going through the, the Ten Commandments, um um, we'll recognize that um, um, there is uh, this progression, if you will, within the first table of, of God's law. And, and so maybe think of receiving an announcement of a coming event. Uh, it might be organized, that, that announcement might be organized with questions. Uh, starting with what? Then uh, when? Including date and time. Next maybe where, followed by what to bring. Uh, so to clarify, God's law is not just an announcement. Uh, it's certainly not an invitation. But in a similar kind of way, we can understand the, the table of God's law in this way for the event, if you will, uh, of the Christian life. Um, uh, who is uh, Who to worship, uh, how to worship, uh, to what extent, and finally, when are we called to worship the God who has saved us, the God who has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the slavery of sin? So as we hear and consider the second commandment this morning, let's let's use the, the first point to understand the difference between the first and the second commandment of god's commandments, it's a matter of who versus how in our worship of God, and this brings opportunity for review from last time because um, the first commandment from God again is, "You shall have no other gods before me in my in my presence. The matter of worship is assumed here, right I mean what what is the relationship between a man and his God?" Uh, between a woman and her God, between a child and his or her God, uh, uh, the man, woman, or child has a God that is worshipped. So the first matter of God's law is who is to be Israel's God? And the answer from God is that he, the, the Lord, Yahweh, is to be their God as they worship him in response to to his salvation for them. Even more, they are to have no other gods. God will not simply be included in some pantheon of gods, some collection of gods made by his people. It's interesting that in Israel's day, the nations around them generally, not perfectly, but generally did the same thing. Each of the nations of Canaan had their own god. And one nation would not have thought to anger their God by uh, also worshiping the God of the nation next to them or any God of the nations around them. So in one respect, the Lord God, the one true God, is, is simply taking up his position of exclusivity as the God of his people Israel. Again from last time, this is why God referred to himself as the husband of his people and to his people as his wife. Someone might say, uh, yes, but wasn't a man allowed to have more than one wife in the Old Testament? It is true that polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament, but it was never the ideal and, and never condoned by God. Uh, Think of Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Susan. Uh, Think of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Think of Isaac and Rebecca. Now you're waiting for Jacob, right? Think of how Jacob ended up with two wives, Rachel and Leah. Jacob went to find a wife, but he was tricked into taking two, and thus began the trouble and the strife god's intent has always been for one man and one woman to enter into this relationship called marriage becoming lifelong partners as husband and wife and this very special relationship was created by god to be the image of his relationship to his people his exclusive relationship. One God, one people, not only for a lifetime, but even from everlasting to everlasting for all eternity. So God's first commandment commands and teaches his people who is to be their God, who they are to worship. And God's second commandment then teaches how they are to worship him. If we misunderstand it, then the second commandment might seem redundant. If God's people are to have only one God, and if that one God must be the Lord, then why would they need to be told not to make other gods? But that's not what the second commandment is telling Israel not to do. Instead, the second commandment is teaching Israel how to worship the Lord commanding Israel not to make an image by which they think to be worshiping him. We ought to understand that this is what the nations of Canaan did with their gods. It's not that they thought the the stone image or the metal idol was the full extent of their god. They too had an understanding of their god as a spiritual being But in order to connect with their God, in order to relate to their God, in order to worship, please, and coerce their God to do them good and not harm, they made an image of their God and bowed down to it. And this the people of God were not to do in their worship of Yahweh. However, there is a connection between the first and the second of God's commandments, because by thinking to make an image of Yahweh, they would be diminishing the true character of Yahweh, and therefore, they would, uh, in that way, they would be worshipping not the Lord, but a God that, in a sense, they were making up. Instead, God must be worshipped only in that way that would match the true being and character of God. And, and here is the lead-in for the, the fuller application of the, of the second commandment, because to the degree that God is worshipped wrongly, to that degree God is not worshipped, but is diminished in his character. It should go without saying that to worship God is to exalt his character. And since God has made his character known and exalted himself by what he has done, then our worship of God should begin with remembering and declaring what God has done so to make himself known as the great and glorious God that he is. Therefore, we ought to remember that that when, when we worship God, we are seeking to glorify Him, but we must not think to add any glory to God that He does not already bear in His being. He is God. He is glorious in His character. He has made His glory known to us through what He has done. Therefore, we can only glorify Him, really, within ourselves and and, and within others uh, within our understanding and our remembrance of of how glorious he is revealed by what he has done for his people therefore again as soon as we think to make an image of god we reduce god to a picture that we have made we have shifted our focus off of what God has done to reveal himself and onto a simple image. In the very moment that we think to be worshiping God, we would actually be diminishing God in our understanding and our remembrance of him. And the same is true for whatever wrong way we use to think to be worshiping God. If we worship God wrongly, then we do not worship, because God's character is diminished rather than exalted. Therefore, the the second point needs to be this, hearing versus seeing in our worship of God. From Old Testament to New, God has always commanded his people to worship him by his word. And not uh, by way of what we see with our eyes. Unless, of course, we are talking about, as we say, the eyes of faith. This should remind us of Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Also, Second Corinthians 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In our worship of God, how do we see God? We do so by his word and thus by faith. We do so by hearing. Some might ask, well, how do we know that God is is present with us as we worship him if we have nothing to look at? But we know God is present because he says so in his word this is what it was lacking in the worship of the of the nations of Canaan they they had no word from their god as psalm 115 says uh, the idols representing false gods have only the work of human are, are only the work of human hands they have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear noses but do not smell they have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk and, and they make not a sound in their throat. Notice that in this description of, of all false gods worshipped through an image that it begins and ends with speech. They have mouths but do not speak. And then in the end, they do not make a sound with their throat. Why say the, why say the same thing twice? Because that's the biggest problem with all false gods. They do not speak. They have not spoken, nor will they ever speak, because they are not real. All false gods are, as Psalm 115 says, the work of human hands. But not only are all false gods the work of human hands, when an image is made of them, Even before an image is made of a false god, a false god is merely the work of human imagination. This was Paul's point as he was preaching in Athens at the Areopagus, recorded in Acts 17, verse 29 and following. He he stood to proclaim the one true God and to teach that all people are created by him, And that we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And we really ought to consider that that whenever a false god is made within the mind and imagination of man, it is always a reduction down from the one true God. Remember Psalm 19 again, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's interesting that uh, the world was made by the word of God. God said, let there be, and so it was and is. And the result is that now God continues to speak through creation. The heavens speak teaches David. The sky above proclaims, he says, and what do they declare and proclaim? The glory of God revealed by what he has done, by his handiwork. But the main point here, people know their creator by what he has done through what he has made in all creation. And so Paul writes in Romans We always seem to come back to this teaching in Romans 1, do we not? That what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the point is this, that mankind knows God. And that whenever man makes a false God, it is always a reduction down from the one true God. It's the ultimate case of cherry picking, taking what you want and rejecting what you don't want from God's true being and character. And that ought to, uh, ought to explain an awful lot to us because We ourselves are are given to do the same thing. We we want a God to bless us. Um, uh, We want a God to watch over us and and protect us. Uh, We want a God to inspire us. Um, But we also want a God that stays away when we don't want Him, when we think we don't need Him. We want a God that we can set up and take down by our own choosing. And that ought to sound familiar because that's the pagan notion of worshiping by way of an idol. You can set up your idol, you can take it down again. We may not be given or even tempted to make a stone image of our false gods, but idolatry, the making of false gods, is alive and well in this present day. It always strikes me that we can, we can criticize the, the Greeks and Romans for their pantheons of gods. But in our day, we have millions of gods. Because in our day, there is a unique God for every person alive. Each person is considered free to decide for him or herself what their God is like. So what is the answer to all such falsehood? The Word of God. The Word of God is the inspired record of the speech of God, the God who speaks. Even more, the answer is worship that is based upon the Word of God so that we are guarded against going back to to visual worship. We know less than the Israel of old will always want to see rather than to hear. And so the further answer to all such falsehood is to see, to see with the eyes of faith, in other words, to understand by the word of God that God has given us his image. Colossians 1 verse 15 teaches of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And to make that point that that, that Christ is, is, is the, the image of God is, is to say that he is God himself. Paul goes on to write, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Can we... Can we see that such a thing can surely only be said about God? So that Christ is both the image of God, and yet he is God himself in our own flesh. And yet even Christ is made known to us by the word of God. He is the word of God. He makes known to us the word of God. And he comes to us. He He himself is made known to us in a book, in our Bibles. And we believe that the second commandment extends even to Christ. Have you ever thought about how we are not given a description of Christ in the Bible? The only description we have of Christ in the Bible is from the prophet Isaiah. When it says in Isaiah 53 verse 2 that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him so we are far better off not to speculate not to make pictures of jesus why again because god is is to be known and worshiped by his word and since christ is god Let us not be tempted to worship Christ by any image made by the imagination of man, because we don't know what he looked like. Let us worship him by the word. He became, according to God's word, he came as the word of God. He remains the word of God at the right hand of the Father, and Christ is to be worshipped as God by the word. Let's end with these two quick points, a dark warning and a bright promise. Going back to the second commandment itself in Exodus 20, verse 5, it reads, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, why, why, is, why is this okay? Why is it okay? Why is it even right and holy for God to be jealous? And it is right and holy for God to be jealous in the same way that a husband should be jealous if his wife is unfaithful to him. Or or that a a wife should be jealous for her husband if her husband is unfaithful to her. And we too should be jealous for God, uh, but with the assurance that he will always be faithful to us. But God's righteous jealousy for his people comes with this dark warning that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of of those who hate me. So, granted, uh, it's it's a difficult reference. Uh, In my study, uh, not much is written by scholars uh, and commentators on, on why to the third and fourth generation. But what is clear is that the false worship of God has consequences for generations within the family. Twice within the, the Ten Commandments, God gives reference to the future of his people, to the generations to come. The second time is in the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you. But here, too, the, the perspective is, is the future. Here. Here, here, too, the reference is to the passage of faith from one generation to the next within God's covenant. If, if we worship a false god, if, if we think to worship the Lord in a wrong way, we do a great disservice to our children. Too often, it gets thought and said that uh, if we don't change the way we worship, our children will not want to come to church. They will leave the church. But God's law says that we must worship him as he commands us to worship. So to maintain a right knowledge of him. So also to teach and impress upon our children what God is, his character, and who he is. The God who loves us. The God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. And so this bright promise in verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And notice the the double love, if you will, in this promise. We, We have made the point that the law of God is about our worship of God. The first table of God's law teaches us who and how and to what extent and when to worship God. But here we are taught that to obey God is to worship him, is to love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But then there is this love, the love of God to us and, and to our children. So it's really, it's really triple love because first God loved us and saved us from our sins in Christ. Therefore, we love God and worship him in response to his salvation. And when we worship him rightly, his love in Christ, the gospel of his love, will pass to our children and from them to their children and from that generation to the next. Here is an importance or here is the importance of worshiping God rightly that we might know that it might be impressed upon us that we might remember that God is love and that our children might know and remember that God is love even to a thousand generations. Let's bow in prayer. We do thank you for your law, O God, and for its ministry how it teaches us our sin how it how it uh, defines you as God how it leads us to Christ in this case to him as your very image given to us and we thank you that your law then calls us guides us instructs us how to live a life of love Toward you in thankfulness for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your law. May it serve its purpose well by the work and the power of your Holy Spirit within each of us as believers in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.